Man, I love this text. So let me tell you guys a story. Two centuries before Jesus, there was a man who lived that was called Judah. We'll just, I'll tell you what they called him later, but let's just say his name is Judah. And he was your classic hero. He's your good guy. But every good guy, in order to be known as, you know, the good guy, the hero, needs a bad guy. Sort of the, the Lex Luthor to Superman or the, the Joker for your Batman. And so the bad guy, his name was Antiochus IV. And I kid you not, he gave himself a surname, Antiochus IV, and then he called himself Epiphanes, which means God manifest. So he named himself God manifest, and he had it printed on coins and stuff. I mean, just a total narcissist. Uh, Many others who knew him, though, didn't call him Epiphanes. They called him Epimenes, which is just a one-letter change wordplay, which means the crazy one. Okay, so he was, he was crazy. Uh, and not just like funny crazy, he was, he was terrible. So after one incident among traditional Jews uh, irked him, he slaughtered 80,000 people, many of them innocent women, children, and infants. And this all happened in uh, ancient Israel 200 years before Christ. He was a total tyrant. Um, he outlawed Jewish religion. He was so mad at the Jews, especially the traditional Jews, that he outlawed Jewish religion. And he wanted to turn... Israel into a pagan state, and so he, he forbid worship in the temple and then changed the temple to a temple of Zeus. He thought, you know, what's the best way to get rid of Yahweh or to get rid of the, the, the worship of Yahweh was to change the temple to Zeus. So it's just funny, you know, when you read history, people kept trying to do this to the Jewish people. Over and over, they tried to stamp out their God and, and, and wipe out the Jewish people, but they never pulled it off. So here the Jews are waiting for a deliverer, you know, another Nehemiah, another Moses, to save them. And this is when Judah comes in, this Judah, our, our hero. He, along with his brothers and father, start a revolt. It's kind of a messy militia revolt. They know that they can't uh, overthrow their, their conqueror, Antiochus, and his armies in a fair sort of normal battle. So they go through all these sort of militia methods in order to defeat them. And Judah, it turns out, has a knack for fighting, a knack for warfare and for strategy. And he's so devastating, in fact, that uh, he takes down so many men that people start calling him by a nickname. They call him not Judah just by itself. They call him Judah Maccabee or Yehuda Maccabee, and it means Judah the Hammer. So you might have heard of the Maccabees. There's a story of the, of the Maccabees. They start calling him Judah the Hammer. And still today, scholars can't make up their minds as to whether or not he's called Judah the Hammer because of how fierce he was in battle or because he preferred to use a sledgehammer as his main weapon in battle. So I can't imagine going against a guy who prefers to use a sledgehammer. Anyway, this guy is called Judah the Hammer, and for good reason. So he led the Jews against his enemy kingdom, this enemy kingdom, in a, a bloody battle for two years, and he finally drove them out and achieved independence. And, you know, yay, the temple was theirs again. So what did he do? He went to the temple, the, the Jewish temple. It was a total mess. It was overgrown. A lot of things were just falling apart. It had been totally abused. They had used it for pagan worship, for pagan sacrifices, temple prostitution. The whole place was defiled. So they began to purify the temple. Judah the hammer and his, his compatriots um, started to purify the temple. They removed the altar and built a new one, and then he re-consecra- reconsecrated the Jewish temple. So for the first time in three and a half years, none of the sacrifices or any of the Jewish religion had been followed for three and a half years. And then at, at uh, the end of this purification time, they began again their system of worship and sacrifices. It was such a celebration that for eight days they held a festival, and they called it the Festival of Lights, but very soon, and no one knows why, they started calling it the Festival of Dedication, of sort of reconsecrating, rededicating the temple. And an interesting fact is, the Hebrew word for dedication is Hanukkah. 
And so this celebration of celebrating Hanukkah that continues to this day started because of this Judah, the hammer, who, who sort of whooped the, uh, the enemies and got them out of there. The Maccabee brothers kept fighting off the enemy forces. They kept pushing them further and further outside the capital. And one of the Maccabee brothers, not Judah, but his, his brother Simon, after a major victory, was heading back with his armies after one of the last kind of crucial strongholds had been defeated. And as he was coming back to Jerusalem, the people ran outside the city and met him as he came in with his forces. And they started waving palm branches at Simon Maccabee uh, as a way to welcome him back in. Because palm branches, I think we have some up here from, from the morning service, um, Palm branches are a nationalistic symbol of Israel, sort of like waving an American flag. Like imagine if, if Nazi Germany had won World War II, but then after four or five years of, of being subjugated to the Germans, if, if we fought back and sort of came back, imagine if you were welcoming the general back into New York City or something that had finally freed you from occupation. They're laying palm branches and cloaks on the road, just like we might lay an American flag or some other symbol of America on the ground. Um, so this is a huge win for the people of Israel. They got their freedom from, to be honest, kind of like a B-level kingdom. Like they were, they were conquerors and they were strong, but this is sort of a junior varsity uh, oppressor that they had over them. Uh, <laughs> but there was a certain haze over the whole event because nobody really seemed to have authority. Judah the hammer, you know, when, when cleansing the temple, removed all the stones that, that had, been, um, had pagan sacrifices committed on them, but he didn't know what to do. He knew he had to get the, the stones out of the temple, but he really had no prophetic direction or no authority. First Maccabees says, this is actually in the Apocrypha, um, but it records this story. First Maccabees says, and they cleansed the sanctuary and removed the defiled stones to an unclean place. They deliberated what to do about the altar of burnt offering, which had been profaned. And they thought it best to tear it down so that it would not be a lasting shame to them that Gentiles had defiled it. So they tore down the altar and stored the stones in a convenient place on the temple hill until a prophet should come to tell them what to do with them. So Judah might have liberated the people, but there was this sense, even by himself, that he wasn't the guy. Like he wasn't the one that, that was, was sent to them. He was just doing what was right and freeing the people. But he, he was awaiting another, and the Jews awaited a true prophet. So with the stones of the profaned altar, they didn't, they didn't know what to do. They just kind of got them out of town. And they stored them away somewhere until somebody who actually had authority, a real and true prophet, would come and say, thus saith the Lord, this is what we need to do with those stones, or this is how we re-consecrate our temple. And his premonition about his own lack of authority turned out to be right. So he won the Jews a tentative freedom, but it wouldn't be long until they found themselves in the same kind of situation. Just a few decades later, they wouldn't be conquered by some junior varsity kingdom, this time they were going to be conquered by Rome. They were still allowed to use their temple, but they were a subjected people, so it was really only a matter of time until they were either you know, sent, kind of scattered, a, a diaspora style to the four winds and their culture was uprooted, or before their temple was turned into a Roman god's temple. They really had no authority, even though currently they were kind of free, but kind of subjugated at the same time. So they awaited a true prophet in Jesus' day. They awaited this true prophet, a true king, and a true savior, who for them would be another hammer who could defeat Rome, and who could bring back Israel from its slumber. Somebody who not only knew what to do with the stones of the altar, but actually had authority over disease and sickness and even death and life. That's who they were waiting for. When would they receive, when would they receive their, their true prophet, the son of David, an eternal king? Um, who, who is this that was going to be coming that would not rule over just Israel, but over all kingdoms and over the entire earth? Like, who is it? that could conquer the whole world. I mean, they, they knew he was coming. They knew that he was coming from Bethlehem, that he was from the line of David, 
and they believed that this prophecy, that the whole world somehow would be won over by him. They believed that this was true, but they also lacked faith. This is kind of the background to the story that Anna just read. How could somebody ever conquer Rome? It was so powerful. Rome had more soldiers. Get this. They had more soldiers than Israel even had people, even counting women and children. So how could it be done? They didn't know, but they believed that the Messiah was coming and that he could do it. So this background is kind of the mental climate that you need to have going into the hope, the the sort of disappointed hope that the Jews of Jesus' day had in their heart. When he's entering into Jerusalem, these are all the things that are going on in their minds. They were a free people, and then they were subjugated again by this really strong oppressor, and they're waiting for deliverance. They still celebrated Hanukkah, but that taste in their mouth was rotten because now they were under Rome, and they weren't free. So they awaited a savior. They were confused about what he'd be like. They had all these different ideas. Would he be another Judah the hammer, like, but bigger and badder this time, you know, to defeat Rome? Or would he be like the Messiah, the suffering servant um, from Isaiah 53 that would forgive them of their iniquity, their wrongdoing before God? And so when you come to this story, it's helpful to know what they were going through, what they were feeling. They were waiting for this Messiah, savior, king, and they didn't know exactly what he would look like. But this is their climate going into this story. So Jesus had just, one or two stories before, had just raised a man from the dead. It was Lazarus, and it was probably his most famous miracle of his entire ministry up to that point. The crowds flock from all around to see Lazarus because they knew he was dead, and now they know that he's alive again. And so in these communities of just a few hundred people, everybody knew everybody. So almost everyone around knew who Lazarus was, and they knew that he had died. He died almost a week before Jesus raised him from the dead. So all these crowds are gathering to see this Lazarus, who they knew, who they knew was dead, and now all of a sudden is alive again. And they're all just a couple miles outside Jerusalem and headed into the city. And Jesus kind of uh, you know, goes over, or crests the Mount of Olives, which is said to be the mountain over which the Messiah would come. And then Jesus says to his disciples, he says, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find, find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So first, what's a colt? Any city people here, it's like, well, what, what does that mean? Uh, it can be a young horse. This is confusing. It can be a young horse or a young donkey. But here it's a young donkey, one that had never been ridden before. And when they start uh, doing something that looks kind of like stealing, they're just walking up to a house and they start untying somebody else's donkey. So when it kind of looks like stealing, and the master of the house then asks, what are you doing? And they say, all, all the scripture tells us is that they say, the Lord has need of it. But they surely said more. They probably would have said something like, we're disciples of Jesus of Nazareth, and he asked to borrow it. And there wasn't a person in Israel who didn't know that name at that time, especially in that region, where Lazarus had just come back from the dead. And the owner of that donkey probably knew who Lazarus was. So when this Jesus comes in, who you've heard all these miracles about for years, and then he raises your friend or acquaintance from the dead, when he asks to borrow your donkey, well, one, you must think, like, well, why do you need a donkey? But you, you lend it. Jesus makes this huge statement with this donkey. He doesn't come in like any Roman general would, like any powerful person or rich person would. He comes in on this donkey rather than, say, a white horse or like a a sheeming uh, uh, Arabian horse, I think they're called. He doesn't need Roman symbols to be powerful. He doesn't need that to be powerful. He can come in on this weak adolescent donkey and still command more respect and more glory than the greatest that Rome has to offer. And also, he's pulling from the Old Testament. The people knew this. He's the fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. 9. 
that says in, in Zechariah, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So there's this really um, well-known prophecy that the Messiah is coming, and he's coming on a donkey. People must have thought, like, how is that going to turn out? Like, what? He's coming on a donkey. And it goes on to say, he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be, shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Capital R, river, from the Euphrates. So this massive river. So basically the idea is he's not just going to be a king over Israel. He's not just going to be the Jewish king. He's going to be the king over the entire world. Uh, it also says, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So they're well aware of this this prophecy that the Messiah is coming. He's in the line of David. He's a king. He's a savior. And he's coming on a donkey. And he's not just, there's going to be a before and after that happens. He's not just going to be a Judah the hammer. He's not just going to be our king. He's going to be the entire world's king. But they couldn't get it out of their head that they thought he was going to be a military king. That That's how he would get his, his reign, so to speak. So imagine you're the crowds. You know, the, here's Jesus coming, the one who out of nothing creates bread and fish for thousands of people out in the middle of the, the wilderness, just like Yahweh did through Moses. Here's the one who raises the dead, and now he's borrowed this donkey from the guy down the road, and he begins riding into the city, just like Zacharias said. And the people began to sense that this, something really important was happening, something holy was happening. And uh, for some reason, the idea that he should be walking on the same dirt, the same soil that everyone else walked on, just seemed strange to them. So they were following this custom of welcoming royalty by taking off their own cloaks and putting the cloaks down on the road so that the donkey wouldn't even be walking on the same dirt as other people. And they've done this before. Uh, they did this for King Solomon, and they did it for King Jehu. But in much more recent memory and under similar circumstances of, of being oppressed, they did the same thing for Judah Maccabee, Judah the hammer. So they're excited and they cheer and they kind of get it, but they also put palm branches down. And palms, you know, as innocent as they, see, as they seem, they're kind of this war cry. I mean, if you, if you waved palm branches, branches at a public assembly under Roman authority, it was kind of seen as a symbol of subversion and rebellion toward Rome. But the nationalism was kind of wrapped up in their faith. I don't know if you guys, you know, have watched the news lately, but sometimes I think people's uh, nationalism can, can, can tie closely in with their, their faith, and they use the one to uh, be a backdrop for the other, and that happened in their day as well. So those who believe in Jesus begin to call out Hosanna, and they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And hearing the people say this, these clearly messianic and kingly um, proclamations. The religious rulers are scandalized. The Bible says that the Pharisees said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. So they're kind of like, I don't know, translation in our day is like, teacher, do you hear this? Like, stop this madness. Otherwise, you know, who knows what Rome is going to bring and what kind of trouble is going to happen. But Jesus answers, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. If you stop these people from worshiping me as I am, even the stones would cry out and worship. The proper response to Jesus, who creates out of nothing, who heals the blind and the lame, who raises the dead, is worship. That's the proper response, because he is divine. Jesus' claim to divinity was clear. It's, it's all over the place, that if you stop people from worshiping him, even creation will cry out in glory to him. Now, there's this certain irony to Palm Sunday, uh, a certain, I don't know, twistedness in it, and I see it's one of the 
clearest depictions of our human condition of almost any of the stories in the New Testament, that the same people who champion him today, Palm Sunday, that they're ready to follow him as king. So many times in the New Testament, people try to make Jesus their king. They try to hoist him up and say, you know, you're our king, you're going to be our guy that takes on Rome, and Jesus won't let them do it. And so these are the same people who want to follow him as king. They believe that he is this coming Messiah, but they've got it all wrapped up in militaristic ideas that five days later, there are some of the same people who call for Jesus' crucifixion. And there's just something to be said about our condition, that we worship Christ, we worship God, but we're still stuck in a life of sin with our own self-centered expectations, our own sort of self-serving idea about what Jesus needs to be. I think a lot of people will champion this Jesus of Nazareth, just like the, the, the ones who were there. They, they would champion him for being who he says he is, as long as he also turns out to be the one that they were waiting for. So they all have their different ideas about who Jesus needs to be. And they're like, yeah, I'll champion you as this Messiah, this Davidic figure, but what I really want is X or whatever. And so a lot of the crowd, a lot of the Jews at that time were waiting for another Jew to the hammer. They wanted someone with a sledgehammer to come in and show Rome what was up. But when it settles in that, they're, that he's not interested, that Jesus is not interested in being, in, being their, their war hero, then just five days later, they shout, crucify him. And I think this is one of the most common tendencies that we have as human beings, that we might champion Jesus while he says something we like, but if he ever pushes us or challenges us, makes us ashamed of ourselves, then we want to do away with him or sweep him under, under a rug or kind of just ignore that part of him and only speak about the Jesus that agrees with our own Uh, our own preconceived notions and ideas. So they awaited a warrior king, but Jesus challenged all their notions. He was fulfillment and also surprise. And I think it's the same today. It's like, well, we'll take the X Jesus, but not the Y Jesus. You know, we'll take the Jesus that's kind of like this, but not the Jesus that's like that, rather than going to the scriptures and reading about the real Jesus and praying to him, worshiping him. I think people are always waiting for, for Jesus to be the kind of king that they want, or if you imagine if you were to inherit the power to like perform miracles, people always think that Jesus is the kind of king that they would be if they had his same power. But he won't. Jesus won't be that kind of king. And the religious rulers of that day were waiting for him to be like them. You know, privileged, powerful, ready to kind of step on the people that were inferior and below them, and ready to take on Rome. The common people just wanted another hammer. They wanted a war hero that they could cry to and say, go show him. And others awaited this suffering servant, like Isaiah 53 prophesied. And today, I think, I think we see the same, right? That like, uh, people who tend to be more morally conservative want to say, you know, I, I really want Jesus to care about the family and about morals and about purity and holiness culture. I, I really want Jesus to care about free markets or to have certain ideas about you know, how much we love our neighbor. And I think liberals have the same problem. So we, we each kind of pick the Jesus that we, we want. Liberals tend to justify the... Uh, the Jesus that says, you know, lay it on the line regarding helping the poor and the outcast. But please, you know, none of this talk about uh, repenting of sin or living a life honoring to God. You know, that's kind of paternalistic or patriarchal, right? And so I think both people who kind of tend one way or the other have these problems, and they only want to filter a certain Jesus through. I think um, some, some Protestants have this... Um, they have the desire to see Jesus as a transaction. I have often heard it said... In, in Protestant churches, they say that the Gospels are a long passion narrative, uh, and, or sorry, they're a passion narrative, so like the cross. That it's, it's a story about the cross with a really long introduction. 
So they say, you know, the first 15 chapters of the gospel is just a long intro, but really it's just, you know, just the cross. And so they're in, a, they're in a sense, they're throwing away all the teaching about ethics, about justice, about what it means to love the least of these or your neighbor. They're throwing all that away to just focus on the cross. And I think others make the opposite mistake. They chop off the last third of the gospels to only focus on the ethics and the justice, but Jesus won't have it. I mean, he's both and. He's not just a, he's not just a passion narrative. He didn't just come to give us a ticket to heaven. He didn't just come to live for one week. He came for 33 years, and it all matters. He is both and. And we await, we, we tend to want to wait, await this Jesus that we've made in our own image, but Jesus doesn't accept that, and he won't have that. He's not the savior we expect, but he's the savior we need. If the Jesus you worship doesn't challenge you, doesn't break you from time to time and show you your hypocrisy, he's probably not the real Jesus. If he, if he agrees with you on your opinions and sort of judges the same people or dislikes the same people that you dislike, and if he likes the same things you like, and if he has the same opinions that you do, then you've probably just created a Jesus. You've projected a Jesus in your own image. And I think this is what we do. We, we cheer Jesus. We're just like the crowd, right? We cheer him and we love him. And then even if he succeeds in being what he came to be, but fails to be our little idol that we've made, our little projection of Jesus, then we betray him, we pretend we don't know him. We welcome him on Palm, on Palm Sunday, and then we sell him out for 30 pieces of silver on Thursday. Friday night, or I guess it'd be Thursday, late night, we swear we don't know him, we weep bitterly, and then wash, rinse, and repeat. But Jesus will be worshipped no matter what. Whether Jerusalem receives him or not, whether St. Paul receives him or not, uh, Pharisees or not, Democrats or Republicans or not, Jesus will be worshipped. He demands it from his creation. If not Jews, the Gentiles. If not the rich, the poor. If not the popular, then the outcasts. Jesus will be worshipped. He worshipped. He insists on worship. Uh, he made us for worship, and he will get worship. He can't be stopped. He can't be outrooted. He can't be silenced. He can't be coerced, and he can't be overpowered. And we as a church, this is fascinating, we as a church get to be a part of this strength, this legacy that he has. We get to spread his worship, which I don't know if you've ever asked, like, what is the purpose of the church? What is the purpose of evangelism or missions? Uh, worship is. You know, evangelism and, and, and missions really only exists because there are places where worship does not. There are people who don't know Jesus and don't worship him, and worship is the purpose of the church. Whether we worship him through prayer, through um, through teachings and readings through uh, life together, through serving our neighbor, that spread of that worship is the ultimate goal of the church, and we get to be a part of that. All over the world, the stones are crying out. I don't know if you know this, but Christianity is growing by leaps and bounds because of conversion in the world. Other, other faiths are growing mostly by birth rate. So I have this, this story about China. I think this is, this is a great story. So uh, in the early 1930s, um, there were a lot of missionaries in China, a lot of great things were happening, and then Mao and the Communist Party took over, and they, they booted out all foreigners, all missionaries, they're just all gone. China became a closed country, and everyone was just so sad, like, you know, the, the Communist Party saw it. They said, we're going to cut off the head, and then surely the body will die, and everyone was so sad. They're like, well, with, without leaders, without these foreigners, without missionaries, surely the church in, in China will die. What's crazy, though, is that no one knew what was happening. China was completely closed from about the mid-30s until about the 70s or 80s, and no one knew really what was happening on the ground. But once that happened, in a sense, the metaphorical stones cried out. The leaders were silenced, the foreigners were booted out, and then the Chinese church had to take on strength 
unto itself. They had to, they had to depend on God themselves to lead. And then this uh, awakening happened, like almost never before in history. They started having about 50,000 converts a day. When I first heard this, I was like, that's there's no way. That's like a St. Paul every five days. But when you see how many people live in China, it still would take like 50 years to reach the whole country at that rate. Uh, but they started seeing 50,000 converts a day. And these are in little house churches and small groups of people that are coming to know Christ. So this started and it just didn't stop. And you had this local movement of Chinese Christians leading others to know Jesus. So that when China opened up again, they saw that like, I forget the percentage, but a significant percentage of the country was our, had become Christian while it was closed. And it was way more than before when the missionaries were there. And it just kept going and kept going. Now, China is actually the largest Christian country in the world in terms of worshiping Christians. The number of Christians who actually worship, read their Bibles, go to church, they have more there than even here, which is amazing that just that can happen in just 50 years. So the power of Jesus wasn't what they expected, especially with the communist leaders, but it's what the people needed. They tried to cut off the head so that the body would die, but it didn't. The stones cried out, right? The, the, supposedly, the, the people who weren't ready to lead, who weren't trained to lead, led. And now the Chinese church is very quickly becoming the most important or powerful, most leading church in the world. Our grandkids won't, you know, like right now, a lot of times the world is like, oh, did you see that sermon or that teaching or that book by, and then they name some sort of Western teacher or Western professor. Our grandkids, it'll be the reverse. They'll be quoting the South Korean theologian and the Chinese preacher the other way around. So what does this mean for us? It means to take courage because Jesus comes in triumph, even if it doesn't always feel like it to us. I think planting a church in a North American city can sometimes feel, I don't know, a little discouraging, right? Because we're, we're not in that, we're not China. We'll just say that, right? But Jesus comes in triumph, but he also comes to die. And we have to live in that tension. We do the same as him. We will triumph. Jesus will triumph. But we also take up our cross and die to ourselves every day. I believe that St. Paul will know Jesus again, but it is his work. It's so funny how we almost need to work. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the, with the old undergraduate question of like the Arminian-Calvinist debate, which I just find kind of silly, but uh, we need to pray and work and evangelize like we're Arminians. Like it all, it all depends on our effort to reach the lost, but we need to count on God like we're Calvinists and like it's just really all up to him. And we need to do both all the time. It's his work. We need to share the gospel, but changing hearts and actually drawing people to himself is the work of the Spirit. We need to love the world and share the hope in us, and we need to be on mission, but we need to know that it's the Spirit who actually changes hearts, who, it's too bad this word has the, a bad connotation now, but who converts people, who changes people's hearts, who draws them in. And apart from him, we can do nothing. So ask the Spirit to speak into your friendships, to speak into your, your friendships with your coworkers, with your family. Ask for open doors. And I, I, would, I would challenge you to pray this for 40 days. Pray for 40 days that God would open an avenue to have conversations with friends, with family, and with coworkers about the truth of Jesus who came, who died, and who rose again. He's the king and he's arrived and he is the Messiah for the whole world. He might not be the king that they're asking for. They might be a little confused about what the kind of savior they think they need but he is the king that they need. And you know, it's almost ironic that they wanted a king to upend Rome because, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, that they actually kind of got that, even though they didn't realize it at the time. So if somebody, say not Jesus, somebody else were to come in and actually have the battle smarts to take this small little you know, outpost and defend or, or conquer Rome, eventually then their little military movement would have fallen. 200, 500, 1,000 years, 
whatever kingdom Judah set up would have, would have ended. But Jesus, you know, he, he came in a sense like Judah the hammer. Right? He, raised, he, he purified the temple, but he didn't need to fight a war. He, he, he didn't use a sword. He didn't use a sledgehammer, that's for sure. But his word was his sword, and he then still conquered Rome. He turned the world upside down, and he took this, this empire, and within 300 years, the Roman Empire had became majority Christian, just through love, through worship, through evangelism, through missions. Um, and then he ended up turning the entire empire upside down. So the very empire that they wanted him to own, to sort of take control of, he did in very short order. And then he, he flipped it on its head. I mean, here's the, the empire that ordered his execution. The Jews didn't have the authority to put him on the cross. It took Pilate to do that. So the empire, the Roman empire that ordered his execution then becomes majority Christian within 300 years. And still to this day, Rome is seen as one of the symbols of Christianity, right? And it's in its Catholic branch, at least. But Rome still to this day is seen by the world as one of the, the sort of uh, rooted institutions of Christianity in the history of the world. And so it's funny, as they were waiting for someone to come and take over Rome, and he actually did. He just didn't do it in the way that they were expecting. People worshipped him on Palm Sunday, and then every other Sunday after that, until the end of human civilization, we will cheer just like they did then. He may not be the king that the world asks for, but once people know him, they will realize that he is their true savior and their true king. I want to encourage you to share him and to proclaim him to the world. Sometimes it might feel more like that Thursday night of Holy Week or Friday night. Sometimes it might feel more like Sunday. But share him, proclaim him to the world. It is the Spirit's work to draw people to himself. He's not the Savior that St. Paul asked for, but I believe he's the Savior that St. Paul needs. Let me pray to close us. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for your triumphal entry, Lord, into Jerusalem, into St. Paul, into our hearts. We pray that you would draw us to you, and not the you that we have in mind, not a projected image of you, not a, a little idol that we've carved where you happen to share the same tendencies that we do, but help us to draw near to the real you so that we could know you better, that we could spend time with you, that we could become like you, and give us this, the strength, give us the encouragement to share you without fear, to share you with boldness, whether that's uh, inviting our friends to a Good Friday or Easter service or just starting a good conversation about uh, the truths, the, the claims that you make in the Gospels. We pray for your strength, Lord, and we pray that you would enter into the hearts of everyone at St. Paul. In Jesus' name, amen.